Lord, we ask for your help this morning as we study your word. I ask, Lord, that as your messenger, I would be faithful to proclaim your word as your word, that um, it would come forth, Lord, in, in, in power, that you would be at work in the hearts of those who are here, both believers and those that are unbelievers. We ask, Lord, that you would have your way with us through the preaching of your word and that you would be glorified in all of it. In your precious holy name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Over the past 20 or 30 years or so, due primarily to the drastic changes in technology, how churches um, usually gather together and celebrate worship and song has changed somewhat, actually quite considerably. Uh, there was a time when everyone sang from hymnals. You guys remember that time. Um, and then from the hymnals, it, it kind of moved to, to chorus sheets or chorus booklets. Um, and then, of course, in a, in a time like today, uh, there is PowerPoint or things like PowerPoint where the, 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 the words are put up on the screen. And for some of you, you're like, oh, I wish we had the, you know, the old way with the hymnals or, or the chorus sheets or, or I love the, the, the PowerPoint. And there's actually some positives and negatives to both. On the positive side, that the changes that have taken place, in my opinion, have allowed the church to actually sing with more passion and more freedom because they're no longer looking down at a hymnal which actually closes off the airways. You notice that good choirs, they hold the music out like this so they can project, but we typically have done this. But when it's up on a screen, what do you do? You're, you're singing, you're singing, you know, and, and your voice is, is, is open, your windpipes are open, and there's more freedom to, to praise the Lord. And I think also freedom in a physical way to, to stand and to, and to, to, to be in, in a little bit more of a posture of praise. On a negative side, though, um, one of the things that we lack with having the words on a screen is the joy of music, in particular, like the four-part harmony that you would get in the hymn books, or actually the ability to read music. Um, you know, a lot of times we sing songs, and it's like, I think this is how it goes, but if you had a hymnal, you'd be like, okay, this note goes here, I go up. You don't have to be able to read it. You just know I go up here, right? And, and there are other different parts there. And, and I think we've, we've lost some of that. So there's some benefits on both sides. The church is called to be a singing people. And Israel was a singing people. And if you, if you just hold your Bible in your hand, one of the things that you have in your hand is a Bible that is full of songs, both in the Old and the New Testament, primarily in the Old Testament. And there's a collection of songs called the Psalms, or also known as the Psalter. And there's 150 songs that are gathered together and to put in the Bible. We call it the Psalms. Now, what's, what's important for us to recognize here is that sometimes we, we really don't understand how they're all put together. We kind of feel that they're, they're loosely you know, there are songs that are just loosely gathered together and put into a book, uh, somewhat of a, of a dog's breakfast, so to speak. You say, what's that? A little bit of this, a little bit of that, all thrown together, it's going to taste good. Or, or it, for, for some of our older generation, it's kind of like a Heinz 57 type thing, right? All sorts of different ingredients, different kinds of psalms, different kinds of, uh, of tunes that are all there, all kind of thrown together, and you have a hymn book. But I want to stress to you that the Psalms are not a haphazard collection of songs. 
There is a thought process through these psalms. In particular, I would say it's one coherent book. There's an organized structure. There's a, a movement from beginning to end. And there is a theme or a melodic line through the book. And I want us to think, first of all, about the structure. You have that there in your, in your handout. I wrote it for you, but what's really interesting is that you have an introduction, which would be Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, where, where, where Jesus Christ ultimately is the blessed man of Psalm 1. He is the one that everyone is going to come down and, and bow the knee to. He's the son they're going to kiss. And there is a conclusion. We call that the great Hallel. At the conclusion, you have these, these psalms on the, on the beginning and the end of the psalm. It's praise the Lord. And you have it five times in a row. And it's divided into five books. Now, we're not going to get into all the detail of what all the different books are about. But I want you to notice that, that each of these books ends with a statement of blessing. So in, in, at the end of, of book one, Psalm 41, verse 13, says this. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The end of book two says, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Book three ends with, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Book four, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, amen, praise the Lord. You get a theme going on here, right? Book five, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So friends, there's a structure, there's a, there's a way that this is all put together in this hymn book that we have recorded in our Bible. And it's helpful, I think, to take time to study that out a little bit more. So when you're reading a psalm, you know where it fits and maybe why it's there. There's also a movement, and it's a movement from lament to praise. On the front end of the psalms, you have this, this book of primarily laments. And a lament basically is, is a groaning. It's a, it's a, it's a time when, when someone is, is just looking and looking at their life and saying, this is horrible, this is terrible. And oftentimes what happens is you have a, a, a crisis that moves to a resolve. But it's a, it's a, it's a lament. And, but throughout the book, just steadily, and this is not necessarily true of, there's not like a steady line going all the way there, but there's a general kind of movement from lament ultimately to the end of the book where it's praise, praise, praise. That's a beautiful movement that, that takes place here. Life is full of difficulties, but when we see God as he actually is interacting with his own people, his own people turn to him and they praise him. Now, there's also a melodic line. You could say it a number of different ways. I want to say it this way. It's a call for the blessed man to praise God in every situation, everywhere, and at all times. We, as God's children, are called to praise him. The blessed man praises God at all times. Bad times, good times, difficult times, celebration times. We are to praise him. And listen, we gather every week here on a Sunday morning and we come here whether life has been good or whether life has been bad. 
because we need to place ourselves in the context of God's people, looking to God, resting on who he is and what he's done, and saying, God, you are worthy of our praise. That's what we're called to. And the Psalms just ooze praise. I love the rawness of the Psalms. You will find Psalms that just express the heart for what it's really feeling, what it's really thinking, that may not even be expressed except that it's a song. The heart is on display in the Psalms here. So that's kind of a a general big picture of the Psalms. It's a very brief one, but hopefully it'll give you a little foundation, a little framework for how we're going to be going about working through this book and, 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 and how our Psalms might fit into this context. So with that in mind, let's think now through Psalm 14. Psalm 14 um, is a lament. Um, it moves from crisis to resolve in the form of deliverance, joy, and gladness. Now David, we see, is the author. And as the author, he is, he is appealing to those who are uh, singing this song to to recognize that there is a rebellious people, a rebellious man, and he is identified as the fool, and these rebellious people are oppressing God's people, also known as the righteous. Now, we don't have a specific occasion that he is addressing here, but it's possible that David is, is writing this psalm during the time when he is running away from Saul and all of his soldiers, or maybe he's another situation where he is, his people are being, um, being chased down, it would seem that it's prior to his ascension to the throne and establishing himself in Zion, because that seems to be yet to come in this psalm. We don't know exactly, but we know this, that in the psalm, he is emphasizing to those reading it or singing it, that the righteous have been and will be delivered from the ongoing oppression of the rebellious in this world. I thought that was up there on the the, uh, PowerPoint, but it's not. So the righteous have been and will be delivered from the ongoing oppression of the rebellious in this world. Now, one Puritan said it this way, so it's a little bit archaic English, but, but get the point. He says, this whole psalm may very well be applied to all times when the church is afflicted and her hope derided by the ungodly and is most admirably adapted to confirm the hope of the pious and to prevent despairing thoughts. In other words, this psalm is written so that God's people who are enduring suffering at the hands of the wicked can turn to God, can look to God, and can live for him. And friends, we are in that context. I know we are in comfortable United States, but the the darkness of unbelief and oppression is creeping further and further into our world. I mean, it's already been there, but it's, just, it's more bold, it's more out there, and you're feeling the pressure of it. And so this psalm is so helpful for us to see what is truly important as we live our lives for his glory. So let's begin by considering the way of the rebellious. And this psalm, by the way, is, is really four sections, um, and, and the, the, the first three are all going to be talking about those who are opposed to God, although there are those who are the rebellious, might want to say over here, And there are those that are the righteous. This is where it's going to end up. 
but we'll begin with the rebellious, but there's going to be some overlap in the psalm. But it begins with the, with the rebellious, ends up with the righteous. I hope you can see that. We're going to focus on the rebellious here as we begin. So the way of the rebellious. And we're going to begin, we're going to begin with the fool. The fool. Now notice verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now the Hebrew word for fool is nabal. Now, you may remember a guy by the name of Nabal in 1 Samuel, married to a beautiful lady by the name of Abigail, who when David came to confront Nabal and actually to hopefully slaughter him and his friends, averted that. And she identified her husband, Nabal, the fool, as a worthless fellow. And this is a description of a fool. He is a worthless fellow. In Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 6, the fool is described in more detail for us. It says this, for the fool speaks folly and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error according or concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. Now, the point that we need to understand here is this. To be called a fool has nothing to do with someone's IQ or their deficiency in intellect. In fact, many people who are fools are very intellectual. What's going on here is this. It has everything to do with an aggressive ungodliness and rebellion against God. This is the fool who is saying in his heart, there is no God. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't say there is no God. It's more emphatic than that. It says the fool says in his heart, no God. There's a little difference. It's not just a theory. There is no God, as if I've gone around the world and I've studied the world and I've come to a conclusion that there is no God. No, the fool says in his heart, no God. Even though the evidence is right before him, he says no God. So this isn't simply atheism at play, but this is, this is uh, a, a, a rebellion that boasts no God. Now, what is important to note here is that the fool doesn't necessarily have to make public what he is actually believing privately in his heart. Now, many fools will blabber their mouths, and you can hear what is going on. But God sees into the nooks and the crannies of the heart of this particular person, and he identifies them as a fool because this fool is preaching to himself, no God, no God, no God. And it's kept in the privacy of his heart, but hear this, God sees it. Now what the fool is saying is this, God doesn't matter, God is not a factor in my thinking. God, um, nor what he says uh, or, or thinks, does not count. He is irrelevant and should be, uh, or shouldn't be a part of any of my thinking. And of course, I mentioned it last week, but you know the, the whole Bernie Sanders thing that came out a couple of weeks ago, where he basically challenged 
the appointment of a particular individual for one of the cabinet. Not being political here, but just what he said was actually very, very telling about him. He says, if you believe in the teachings of the Bible that mankind is condemned, you have no business serving in public office. Now, what ultimately is he saying? He is saying, as, by the way, an avowed atheist, he is saying that God doesn't matter, that he and his views should not shape the thinking of our country, that his influence is not welcome at all, that he has no business interfering with our government or, or the leading of our country. By, by virtue of definition, Bernie Sanders is a rebellious fool from a biblical definition. That's what he is saying. I want God out of the way. No God. Now, the fruit of that kind of thinking is then described by David in two ways. Corruption and abominable deeds. So the idea of, of ideology of no God gives birth to corruption in thought, in character, and in behavior, a behavior that is full of abominable deeds. Now there's two men from, from I would say, the last century history that you can say were, were some of the most wicked men um, on the planet of the earth, and I'm just Picking out two, there's more that we could list, but I want to just, just identify Hitler and then Stalin. Now, a lot of people turn to Hitler and say, well, Hitler was a Christian. Now, let me just tell you something. Um, Hitler saw himself as the savior of Germany and the Jews as the enemy. If you actually do some research and listen to the songs that were sung about the Fuhrer, they were singing songs to him as if he were God. He saw himself as the one called to do these things. By no means was he a Christian according to the Bible because he rebelled against what God's word says. He set himself up as a leader and he set himself up to do abominable deeds. He was corrupt in his thinking. He was in rebellion against God. The same can be true of Stalin, of course, carrying on the lines of atheistic thinking, thought nothing of starving millions of Ukrainians because they were opposed to his practices. Between seven to 12 million were killed in the forced famine that he placed upon them. Friends, that's, that's almost three times the Bay Area put to death. How is it that someone can, can act and, to, and think and behave in such a way where they're callous like that? It's because in their heart, what are they saying? No God. He's irrelevant. He's out of the picture. He and his views and his ideas mean nothing. That's the fool. And we don't have to look too far in our own history to see that this is being played out. Today, millions of unborn children have been murdered or aborted by a society and a people that are fools, based on a biblical definition. They say, no God. A morality that comes from the Christian people should not be considered in determining whether or not this child should be aborted or not. No God. Stay out of our business, God. We don't want to listen to you, God. We will do very well what we please. Thank you very much, God. Even though we don't believe you exist, we'll speak like this to you. 
Now those are fools who rebel against God and do not do good. And in case you're wanting to challenge God's assessment of the writer of this psalm, he says it one more time, no, not one. Now friends, David is making a big point here. There is a fool who yells in his heart, I want God completely out of the picture. So the first in the rebellion is the fool, but he's not the only one who's rebelling. I want you to notice that David has moved from the singular, the fool, to the plural, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. So I, I want to put to rest this idea that this saving or this, that, that say, that's saying here that being a fool is an isolated is, is incident. This is not an isolated incident. This is a universal condition. The whole of mankind consists of Nabals, fools, who are in rebellion against God. And now they're identified as we move on to verse 2 as the children of man. This is a reference to mankind in general. And notice what happens to them. They have all turned aside. Look at verse two. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now friends, I hope you get this. Man cannot hide from heaven's gaze. The, the, the picture here is that God is in heaven and he is looking down. And here are the children of men, and, and none of them understand. None of them seek after God. Hear this. There, there, is, there is no man who is left to himself that is looking for God and the God of the universe. He's not seeking after God. Now, he might be seeking for a God, something to worship, someone to blame, or, or someone to make him feel better, but it isn't the God of the Bible. It isn't the God who created the heavens and the earth. Man left to himself does not seek after God. He needs God to seek after him. That's just the, the teaching of Scripture. So no, God has revealed himself, but they stand in willful ignorance. We have moved from this blatant denial of the fool to this, this thoughtless neglect. Yes, God has been on display, but I'm not even going to pay attention to him. They've turned aside from that. They don't want to consider it. They don't want to know anything about God. And so it is to this psalm that the Apostle Paul appeals and quotes in Romans 3. Turn, if you would, please, to Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. And you can see now how Paul is using this psalm to help us even understand what the psalm is talking about. Romans chapter 3 and verses 9 through 12. Paul here is arguing that, that in this book of Romans that both Jews and Gentiles are all corrupted by sin and all ultimately accountable to God. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So here we may say with all the people, Christians, Muslims, Mormons, Buddhists, Jews, go down the list. We are all accountable to God because of the corruption of sin that defiles every part of our being. That is the condition of man. And Paul's arguing, don't think, Jews, that you're any better off than these Gentiles. You're all under sin and all accountable to God because of the corruption of that sin that defiles every part of your being. That's what Romans 3.19 summarizes for us. So theologically, friends, hear this. This is understood by the term man's total depravity. All of us are totally and thoroughly permeated throughout by sin. So if you're not a follower of Christ, Every thought that you have, every choice that you make, every, every decision you, you, you make, every pursuit that you have has part and parcel with it sin that is actively at work because of your depravity. Sin is not just something you do. Sin is part of your very nature. We are permeated with sin throughout. That is man's total depravity. Man, then, is totally unable to turn to God, nor does he even want to unless God himself breathes life into man. So there's no man on this earth who is righteous, who understands, who seeks for God without God's intervention. And without God's intervention, man is ruined and destined for eternal destruction. Now, just in case you want to argue the case, just in case you want, to, you want to challenge what God is saying here, again, David says, no, we're all corrupt. We've all fallen short. All of us, let me look back at the actual text here, they have all turned aside together. They've all become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. I think you might be the exception to the rule. I know you're really important. I know you're special. But you are not the exception to the rule. There are no exceptions to the rule. This is the very nature of man without God, therefore who is in rebellion against God. So this is a description of mankind everywhere at any time who has lived or will live and who has not been changed by the gracious heart of God through Christ's death on the cross. We're all worthless men, we're all fools, we're all corrupt. And so the fool says, no, God, the children of men have turned aside from God. But now we're introduced to the evildoers, and these evildoers are described in three ways. Notice, if you would, please, at verse 4 and following. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous, You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Now, what kind of fruit do we see coming from uh, the the fool or uh, from the the children of man, coming from those who are in rebellion against God? What kind of fruit is there? The fruit here is described as evildoers, and we see God's assessment, ignorance, intolerance, and then an illusion. They are living in an illusion. Let's think first of all about ignorance. They have no knowledge. 
This again is willful ignorance. It is a practical atheism. They have pushed God out of the picture so much that they cannot even comprehend him being put back into the picture. Now, they're okay with a, a diminished Jesus Christ. They're, they're okay with a, 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 a softer, kind of twisted view of God who's just, just love and he loves everyone. They're okay with that, but not the God of the Bible, not the God that is revealed in the text of God's word. They don't want to know the truth, and as the old film says, they can't handle the truth. They're ignorant. They have no knowledge. But not only that, that, that ignorance breeds, now bears fruit in intolerance. Notice the expressions that are used here. Eaten up. They shame. So they eat up my people, verse 4, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. It's not saying that they're, they're eating up people while they're eating up bread. That's not the idea. The as is like. So they swallow, they devour God's people. Those who have been chosen out of this world, who are living for God, those who are in a right standing with the creator of the universe are under the burden of suffering at the cruel hands of the rebellious. They cause harm to God's people in such a way that they think nothing of it. They're, they're, they're callous to their behavior toward those who are the righteous. They feel justified. There's no conscience behind it at all. So it's just like eating bread. I'm going to harm people over here that are the righteous, and, and, and I'm going to do it just like I'm going to go over here and eat some bread. There's no morality to it. I'm, I'm in a sense, calloused and dead to it. And as I, as I read that, as I studied that, I was reminded of these, these images and this, this practice of the, the Germans, the Third Reich in particular, as you had, a, as you had some, some officers sitting at the table with their family having a nice meal in the evening in their home around the death camp, and just a little ways away, there's a gas chamber and there's Jews who are dying. And, and the Germans are over there, they're, they're, you know, they're putting nice butter on their bread while people over here are dying, and there's no moral compass to see that there's anything wrong with that scenario. This is what the rebellious do. This is how they behave. There is intolerance. They eat up. My people is what God is saying through David. But not only that, they, they shame the poor, we're told. A little later on, they put to shame the poor. I love Charles Spurgeon. And, and he is, he's, he's a guy that says it like it is. And he, he, uh, he leans on this passage to encourage Christians to stand strong, though they were being shamed and mocked for their faith. Listen to his words. Young men in the great firms of London, you working men that work in the factories, you are sneered at. Let them sneer. If they can sneer at you, uh, of your religion, Christianity, that would be, you have not get anything worth having, if they can't sneer at you, is what he's saying. Remember, you can be laughed into hell, but you can never be laughed out of it. Oh, but they will point at you. Cannot you bear to be pointed at? But they will chafe you. Chafe, let them chafe you. In other words, mock you, okay? Can that hurt a man that is a man? 
if you are a, a molluscus creature that has no backbone, you may be afraid of jokes and jeers and jests, but if God has made you upright, stand upright. Be a man. Now, friends, that's, a, that's encouragement in the context of rebellion that is pursuing followers of Christ in such a way that they are shaming the poor. I came across this story this week. A few years ago in the summer, um, in, in a particular country in Africa, there were Christians who were being persecuted. Here's how it unfolded. Muslims set out to to impacts to destroy 43 Christian-owned farms. No one was arrested, but that wasn't enough. Two days later came attacks on nine Christian villages. Dozens of people were killed, but that wasn't enough. The next day, at the funeral for these victims, Muslims again attacked and gunned down, among others, two Christian politicians, but that wasn't enough. In less than two weeks, Islamist militants made attacks on 12 villages. Church members took refuge in the home of a local church leader. His house was bombed, and more than 50 people were burned alive. And friends, this kind of stuff is happening far more than you can imagine. Just because we don't see it here doesn't mean that it's not happening. The ungodly, those who are in rebellion against God, who are ignorant, who are intolerant, seek to eat up God's people and put them to shame. Yet, the reality is they are under great illusion. Great illusion. You say, well, wait a second. What's, what's the illusion? The illusion is this, that joy and satisfaction are to be found in their rebellion. In other words, rebellion will not bring joy and satisfaction. What does rebellion bring according to the psalmist here? Yes, they may be shaking their fist at God and say he doesn't exist. They might uh, you know, just be the, 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 the source of all this suffering of God's people and, and the shameful behavior toward God's, God's people. But there is ultimately no joy, there's no gladness. In fact, what there is, as God is looking down from heaven and he sees into their hearts, what is really going on is great terror. So when a man says, there is no God, no God, he's thinking, that gives me freedom now. I can enjoy life now. I don't have the, the hamper of God now stopping me by his morality to tell me what I can and can't do. I have freedom to live my life as I please. Isn't this great? It's an illusion. Because the illusion is at the end of the day, they are in great terror because they know that they will meet their maker. The rebellious man, the fool, this this. this uh, um, this, these evildoers, they will all come the way of great terror. Now, turn to, uh, to Psalm 53. Psalm 53. What's interesting in the Psalms is that Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are almost identical. And some of the thinking is that the Psalms were used in two different, in two different times in Israel history, uh, two different purposes. And, and one of the 
one of the, the, the little changes um, in Psalm 53 is found in verse five, speaking on this very issue. Speaking again here of the evildoers, verse five, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. Now just think about that. Why are you afraid when there is nothing to actually be afraid of? Well, the reason you're afraid when there's nothing to be afraid of is because you are shaking your fist at God. And in shaking your fist at God, you really don't need to fear unless you continue on in your unbelief. There's no real reason for them to be afraid except for their unbelief. Notice what it says next. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Listen, they think that they are the powerful ones. They, they think that they, they, they will change the course of history, that they are strong and mighty and wise. But deep down, they know that they will have to meet their maker. They're too proud to admit it but they will nonetheless be in great terror in their hearts for fear of what they know to be true. God's judgment stands before them. Now, there's a, um, a writer from the 18th century by the name of James Addison. He wrote essays about things that he observed in life. I just want to read a little story for you just relating to all this. Here's what he says. He talks about this, this, this man. He says, he says he was on a shipboard with a particularly vile person when the ship was overtaken by a gale. The passenger was the only one severely frightened, but he was so frightened that he went to the chapel and fell on his knees and confessed that he had, he had been a denier of God and an atheist ever since he had come of age. And it soon got around the ship that there was an atheist on the upper deck. And the common soldiers who had never heard the word atheist before thought that it was a kind of fish. But when they learned that it described a man who denies God, they were frightened themselves and suggested, not quietly, that it would be a good deed to have him or heave him overboard. However, the ship soon came near land. When the penitent man saw that they were not going to perish after all, he repudiated his conversion. Begging the passengers not to say a word of what happened to anyone and went back to his openly wicked ways. That part of the story would make the point, but there is more that needs to be told. He continues. After two days on shore, this man ran into one of the other passengers again, and the passenger reminded him of his newly found piety. In other words, his, his conversion before this chaplain. The atheist denied it. And the argument got so fierce that it ended in a duel in which the atheist was run through with his opponent's sword. At this point, he, that would be the atheist, became as good as a Christian as he was at sea, thinking that he was going to die until he found out that his wound was not mortal, at which point he relapsed again. So this is just the way it is. People, people, people just kind of adjust their thinking, oh, you know, I'm an atheist, I'm an atheist, but push come to shove, you'll find out you really want God. You're actually believing in a God that exists. You've just been rebellion against him. So the way of the fool is a rebellious path of ignorance, intolerance, and illusion that is accompanied with 
great terror. Friends, that is not a path that I wish on anyone. But now we have the deliverance of the righteous. We spent a lot of time talking about the rebellious. But we want to take some time here to consider the, the deliverance of the righteous because in verse 7 we have this, this punchline statement, but there's some things that we, we want to pull from, from before that that give us a picture and an understanding of how the righteous are behaving in the context of all of this being put to shame and being um, eaten up by those rebellious men. There's some things that for the righteous, for the followers of God that are certain. First of all, there is the certainty of the presence of God. Notice verse five. They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Now friends, those are sweet words. God is with the righteous. If, if I had, you know, before even talking about this, if you didn't know anything about it, I said, all right, you know, name, Name five attributes or things about God that just are such a blessing to you. I guarantee you one of the top five would be the fact that God is always with us. That is so important to us. And it's so important to us because his presence brings great comfort. And it's, it's incredibly comforting to know as well as empowering to know that God is present with us in our trials and the psalmist here is describing his people as suffering at the hands of these evildoers, and the suffering is callous, and it's, it's harsh. But even in those times when we're under the thumb of suffering due to the evil oppression of others, we can be confident that God has not abandoned us. Hear this, he sees everything that is going on. He knows exactly what has been done to you, and you can be sure that he will exact revenge in his time. So God's presence, however, doesn't guarantee that your circumstance will change. <laughs> okay, sometimes we think of God's presence and we're like, okay, now I remember God's presence, he's present with me. That doesn't mean that this is gonna change. Sometimes God wants you to actually go through that suffering. But he promises that he is with you through that suffering. And so it's right for us then to pray pray for God's will to be done. We can pray for deliverance from our situation, but we must rest in the fact that God is with us and he knows what is best and he is working his plan even through our trial, even through our suffering. Now friends, sometimes suffering is part of that package. And so we endure, but we don't endure alone. We endure with the very presence of God. And friends, that is a joy for us who are God's people. Secondly, not only the presence of God, but notice, notice the protection of God. Look at verse six. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So the wicked shame the plans of the poor. The poor here refer to God's children, once again in the sense that all they have to hold onto is their plan. That's all they have. This plan has the idea of anguish and hope. So, so what's going on here is a mocking and a scorning of those who are righteous, who are putting their trust in the Lord and what he says. You believe that nonsense? 
that Jesus died on the cross for your sins years ago and that he's coming again? What foolish stuff is that? And you can be the recipient of all kind of mocking, all kind of laughter, all kind of scorn. But what's happening here is there is protection by the fact that they're taking refuge in the very plan that God has said would take place. And here God is saying, listen, when you are experiencing that mocking, when you are put under that kind of shame, know this, I am your refuge. I will take care of you. I will carry you through. Of course, this this mocking, this scorning, and ongoing ridicule flows out of the ignorance of the foolish heart. He says, but I have you covered. You are under my care. And again, this is is not a a promise for uh, immediate action in this physical world on the part of God. But it is a reminder that those who are righteous We live with a a bigger picture in mind. We have a a bigger understanding of of life and eternity because we have it laid out for us in the pages of God's word. We see ourselves as as simply there for a season and a greater purpose that God has for us. So we have then the presence of God. Then there's the protection of God. But notice finally here the promises of God. Look at verse seven now. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. So here they are, getting to the place. They've been under all this oppression, all this suffering, all this, this shame and being eaten up by those who are in rebellion against God. And they've, they've, they're reminded of his presence. They're reminded of his protection. But now they're holding on to the promises of God, believing that God will do what he says he will do. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. And they had an idea of what that would look like. Notice it says, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. It says, when. It doesn't say, if. It says, when. So here you are in the midst of suffering. Here you are in the midst of difficulty. And here the people are saying, not, I wonder if God's going to do this. They say, no, no, no. We understand. This is how the rebellious are. This is how they behave. This is what they think. This is what they do. And we are the recipients of it. But God has promised his children that he will restore them. And so we're believing in that promise. And this is what God's people do. They trust in the presence of God, they lean on the protection of God, and they embrace the promises of God and they believe them. And friends, there's a certain comforting joy and gladness that awaits the righteous by the hand of God here through his servant David. Ultimately, I would say, if this psalm was written during those times, the, 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 the salvation coming out of Zion will be the salvation that comes out of David taking up his seat as that king in Zion, exercising righteous judgment over a nation and ultimately looking ahead to Christ, who is the solution and the answer for mankind. But there's also a certain disturbing terror awaiting the rebellious fool. And God is actively watching from heaven, making sure that his purposes unfold. Now friends, let me just say it this way. Be thankful for God's heavenly gaze. He knows the heart, the character, and the deeds of the rebellious fool. So you're at work and you have a coworker who 
just constantly is mocking the things of God, challenging little snide remarks. God knows that. God is in heaven looking down and he sees into that person's heart and he knows exactly what's going on. And he also looks down and sees you. And he knows what you're going through. He knows your struggles. There's something wonderful and beautiful about the fact that God is looking down from heaven. So in in summary then, here is what happens with those who are the righteous. Joy and gladness, that is what God sees in the hearts of the righteous. The way of the righteous is often a life of suffering and shame, resting on the ongoing presence and comfort of God that is driven by a certainty of God's promised deliverance, a life that will end with rejoicing and gladness. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather be in rebellion against God with the hope of joy and gladness only to find out that you have awaiting you great terror? Or would you rather be in a place where you are worshiping the God of the universe in such a way that you're living righteous and the end result, even though there's trial, even though there's there's oppression, that the end result is joy and gladness? You see the picture here? There's two roads, there's two groups, there's two paths, there's two ways. One is the way of the fool, the other one is the way of the righteous. And each of them has a different destination. Each of them has a different journey. But where they end up is completely different. Now I just want to finish up with four just concluding thoughts, just wrestling back, circling back with some things that I found that were helpful. You can look up on the screen for the first one. First of all, I just want to identify the doom of the rebellious fool. Without going into lots of detail, the fool ends up proving that he is a fool because of the callousness and unbelief in his rebellious heart. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, beginning at verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Very similar things going on here. For what can be known about God is plain to them. In other words, God is on display. They can see it because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are what? Without excuse. God has been put on display. And those who are ungodly or unrighteous are the ones who are in rebellion against God, who will not embrace that to be true. So there is no hope for the fool who remains in his unbelief. The only thing that's stopping the fool from entering into heaven is his sin of unbelief. But unbelief is all that is necessary to stop you from entering into heaven. Number two, the danger of practical atheism. You know, what are you talking about there, Pastor Rod? Well, many Christians are drawn by God's grace to a true and glorious conversion. But there's a danger 
a lurking warning that takes place in the context of the life of a believer. And it's, it's, a, it's a warning that is a drift, that you can drift away from dependence on Christ and toward a practical atheism. And a practical atheism means I, 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 I am, you know, I'm a follower of Christ, but now, practically speaking, I am not living in such a way that I'm a follower of Christ because I have other things that I'm leaning on. So in other words, when, when, I, when I find myself coming up with a, a decision that needs to be made, I've drifted from dependence on Christ, and I'm, I'm leaning on something else. Or I'm, I, I'm trying to pursue a relationship, and in, in that pursuit of that relationship, I'm no longer leaning on the Word of God or the God uh, the, of the Bible or, or Christ himself. I am allowing other things now to be my God, so to speak, to be the the, the voices that I'm listening to. There's a practical atheism where I'm saying, yeah, God, you might have something to say, but I got wisdom over here that's better. And friends, that is a danger for us. Now friends, this is what John Calvin says. There is no stupidity more brutish than forgetfulness of God. Think about that. Here's God who chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. Breathe life into you so that you could think of baptism, die to self, live for him, raise the newness of life, to to, to live under the authority and the mastership of Jesus Christ himself, that you then would turn around and say, eh, I don't think so, I'm not gonna listen to you here, I'm gonna do this. Practical atheism. I'm practically saying, God, I don't acknowledge you. I don't believe you. I don't want you. And friends, that is a challenge for all of us. So when we've drifted from a dependence on Christ, we begin to behave as if God doesn't exist. He isn't the one you turn to when you're facing difficulties or struggles. He isn't the the one who is longed for, pursued in prayer. He's not known because there's no hunger for his word. And so we begin to live our lives trying to struggle through. And friends, this can happen even to, to us who are part of God's church. We, we get into the habit of coming to church and singing songs and, and doing things that all kind of are laced with Christianity, but we've drifted in our heart and our dependence on him. And we're depending on tradition or we're depending on this is how our family does it or this is how our culture does it rather than here's what God says. And friends, there's a danger then, put it this way, is that we become saved by grace, which is true, but we slip into living our lives by works rather than resting in what he has done. So there's a danger, friends, and we need to ask ourselves questions regarding that practical atheism. Number three, the delight of the heavenly gaze. I want to go back to that a little bit here. This delight, this heavenly gaze that is put on display for us is, is really a great comfort especially for those who are under the ongoing persecution of the fool. But God looks down, not only sees man's actions, he sees and hears his words, but he can see through all of man's barriers into the depths of his heart. He knows what he's thinking, he knows what's driving a man's heart, what's driving his motives. William Plummer says this, words are cheap, but what a man says in his heart shows whether he is a wise man or a fool, a saint or a sinner. Now, I can't look into your heart. I can't see 
or hear what you're saying in your heart. But if I could, then I would be able to identify whether or not you're functioning in such a way that you're saying, I want God or I don't want God. But God does. God looks there. So we may may love the fact that God can see the heart of the fool, but we may also be daunted by the fact that he can see our own hearts. He knows what's really there. We cannot hide what is in our hearts. He knows it. But he's given us his word to help us see what is in our hearts and why we think the way that we do and what needs to be rooted out. And this is where Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 is so helpful. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of the joints of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give account. Friends, hear this. The best way for you to know what God sees in your heart is to open up the pages of God's word and allow it to be a mirror to show you your heart. Don't fear him. Don't fear what God is going to reveal as you you walk through his word. Be thankful for what he reveals. Humble yourself before what he reveals. Allow him to show the sinfulness that is there so that that can be rooted out and can be replaced with Christ-honoring thoughts and behaviors that give him glory. Delight in this heavenly gaze, not just because God can see those wicked bad people, but because God can also see the thoughts and the intents of my heart that need to be changed and conformed to the image of Christ. And then I want you to also notice, finally here, the devotion of the righteous people. One of the things I just love about this psalm is just, you have on one side, you have all these horrible things that are happening at the hands of those who are, who are rebellious and who are evil and, and who represent uh, the, 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 the fool and that kind of stuff. But you also have these wonderful kind of stellar, deep-rooted trust attitudes that are reflected in this psalm. So the, 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 the righteous here endure, they face suffering, they, they turn to God for refuge, they rest in his word, they hope in his promises, they rejoice in his salvation. And friends, let me, let me just, just emphasize here um, this, this one last verse, um, and that would be verse seven of our text. It says, oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion. Friends, there's a word that I think has become so commonplace in our Christian context that it's lost its power, it's lost its beauty, and it's that word salvation. We've used it so much, and rightfully so, but this word is throughout the pages of God's word. It's here in the Psalms over and over and over again. Just do a study on it. Just look at the places where the word salvation is used and walk your way into the New Testament, into the beginning of the Gospels, in particular Luke. And then hear what the Apostle Paul says. Just listen to a couple of the the, the verses that that Paul (coughs) states here in Romans, in particular, 1.16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power for salvation. Do we understand what that means, what that looks like, and how beautiful and wonderful that word is? And then he says in 2 Timothy 2.10, 
Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they, may, they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is what was driving him to preach the good news of the gospel, that those who were God's children would, would embrace and live out their salvation until the Lord returns. So friends, I just I want to challenge you. If you're a child of God, you have been saved. You have experienced salvation. Marinate in that word for a while. Let it, let it kind of get the, the nuance that it that maybe once had rather than just kind of a word that we, we kind of bypass now. It's a word we need to resurrect, to brush off and to simmer in our hearts. It is our present reality. It is our future hope, a hope that no fool can ever have unless he abandons his rebellion, unless he humbles his heart before God, unless he cries out in repentance and is forever changed by God's grace. Lord, help us. Help us not to look outside of ourselves and ask the question, who's the fool? But Lord, let us look in our own heart. We understand, Lord, that the fool ultimately is one who stands in rebellion against you, but Lord, that may be true of us here today. It's easy to put on the, the habits of Christianity and still be in rebellion against you. And Lord, it's possible even for believers to have embraced you as Lord and Savior, but, but just over time, drifted away from truly trusting you and believing you and wanting you central in their lives. Lord, may we, may we learn from this psalm that there is something beautiful that we have to, to, to rest in, and that is you. That we have promises that we hold on to. We, we have the confidence, Lord, of your presence with us. We have the, the certainty of our future salvation because that is what you say will come to those who are yours. Strengthen us, Lord, with this psalm. Help us to be the kind of people you've called us to be. Not ones who say no, God, but those who say yes, God. We long for you, and as a result, experience joy and gladness. In your precious name, amen.